Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be here with you. We are continuing in our Advent series, which should be a surprise to no one. Um, But it's been said before, and I'll say it again. If you've been here for the past nine weeks um, at all, whether that was our previous series or the first couple of weeks of Advent, then you know that we've really been in this like extended season of anticipation and longing and just general acknowledgement that we are reaching for something here for a king who has not yet returned, and for a kingdom that has not yet been fully realized. And I'll be honest and tell you that when Kyle and Jonathan pitched preaching this Sunday to me, I was totally on board, but I was also a little bit nervous because this Sunday feels like something that we've been building towards for so long, and it feels like a turning point. There's been a lot of moments over the past nine weeks where we've kind of gotten a glimpse of the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, of the beauty and the hope and the joy that's ours in Christ's coming. But today is about more than just a glimpse, right? We've been waiting and we've been longing and we've been groaning with creation. And today we're gonna hold all of that in one hand and we're gonna say, yes, that's true. We do experience pain and suffering and trauma and grief, we acknowledge that reality. But We don't want to miss out on the fullness of joy that's available to us because we're so busy like caveating it with our pain. We're so busy putting limitations on that joy based on our lived experience. And so today, we're going to look directly at our coming king and we're going to rejoice and we're going to make space to revel in the reality that the Lord is drawing near. Now, obviously, I don't want you to just take it from me. Um, There's actually, this is a historical thing to do. So I did a little background reading on Advent, and specifically on the third Sunday of Advent. And what I learned is that originally, Advent used to be actually a 40-day fast in preparation for Christmas, kind of like the liturgical counterpoint to Lent that we celebrate during the Easter season, kind of preparing us for Easter. In the same way, Advent is supposed to be this penitential season where we wait for Christmas. Now, if you fast forward through history, that 40 days got reduced down to the four Sundays before Christmas that we celebrate today. But it's still, it's still this season of repentance. It's still a season that's supposed to be focused on preparation to prepare us both for Christmas and for Christ's second coming. But in the liturgical calendar, this Sunday, that more somber mood is supposed to be suspended, as it were, just for a moment, in order to symbolize the nearness of the Lord's coming and the joy and the gladness and the promised redemption that's right around the corner. And I think it's like a profound and a sacred kindness to us to have this moment and to accept it for what it is, for a celebration that gives us the ability to continue to wait and to continue to persevere. Because we're not saying that the waiting is over. Like, it's not Christmas yet. There's still time before that day arrives. But as Justin Holcomb, who's an Episcopal priest, and he's a professor at Gordon-Conwell, would say, he says, the Advent season is now half over. And Jesus is coming, both his first coming liturgically and his second coming historically, like, they're nearer now than they've ever been. They're nearer now than they were two weeks ago. And so that's, that's what we're waiting for. 
And if you kind of need a picture to kind of help ground these ideas, all you really have to do is like look at the back row of our church back here, and you see all of the babies back there. And the truth is, that like, we know how this works, right? We've spent months anticipating all of those children who have been born over the past year, right? And before those little people arrived, we didn't know who they would be yet. We didn't see them fully. We just saw kind of a rough outline. And even those really cool 3D sonograms that they can do now where you can like actually see like the form of the baby, like it's still just a shadow of who those children are gonna be, right? But we believed that they were coming and we waited for them. And if you're one of those mothers, like you had that moment probably where your child moved for the first time or they kicked you for the first time and you felt that like rush of joy that you're like, this is really happening. Like there really is a little child like growing there. Um, and we as the community corporately, like we recognize that they're coming and we throw them baby showers. Like before they get here, we take a moment to say, we're preparing for your coming, we're anticipating your coming, and we're gonna celebrate that. And so that's kind of what we're doing here. We're acknowledging the reality that the Lord is near. And even though he's not here yet, and we don't know what that like day is gonna look like, we're still going to anticipate it with joy because we believe that it's coming, we're confident that it's coming, and we want to acknowledge that before our community, for ourselves, before the world, um, because we, we need that in order to be able to endure. So all this to say, perhaps more than any other week in Advent, this week represents a shift in attitude. And so we wear pink and we light our rose candle back there, and we say that we're gonna continue to anticipate with fear and trembling and repentance, yes but we're also gonna to celebrate today with joy and delight. I do wanna take a second here and say that what we're fighting for is not this like temporary happiness that's based on our circumstances, but it's a deep and abiding joy that we can experience despite those circumstances. It's a joy that's rooted in our connection to someone or something that does not change, our spiritual connection to God. And I don't want to spend a lot of time like discussing the Christian definition of joy versus the secular definition of joy because I feel like we have a pretty good handle on that in here. We talk about it often enough. But I do want to highlight this. Um, Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century philosopher and theologian, kind of defined joy as this supernatural joy that's an act of the will and the intellect more than the feelings. And that's the kind of joy that we're talking about. We're talking about a joy that's a deliberate choice, it's a deliberate act of the mind, as much as it is a spontaneous sense of right, great pleasure or delight. And I think that we can talk about it in much the same way that we talk about love, right? We talk about love as being both a feeling and a repeated choosing. There are times when we look at our partners or our children and we are filled with the feelings of love. And at the same time, there are also moments when we look at those same people and we say, you know, right now you are frustrating me or you're hurting me or you're ignoring me and I don't feel that same feeling of love, but in that moment, I'm still choosing to participate in love. I'm not walking away because those circumstances have shifted. And I think that joy can be very similar. There are times when we feel that spontaneous feeling of joy because something happened um, and we feel that sense of joy, but there are also times where Joy is not easy, and we've just spent all of these weeks you know, talking about the reality of how hard life can be. So there's the moments when we have that spontaneous gift of joy and it like bubbles over, but there's a lot of other times when I have to choose to rejoice despite the fact that I don't feel it. 
And that's, that's the reality that we see when we look around. And when I think about my own lived experience, like that's definitely a part of my story. Like there are things that didn't just pan out for me the way I would have always thought that they would or hoped that they would. And in those times, like that's when joy has become a fight. It's become an actual practice of the theology that I say that I believe because I have to continue to choose it even when it isn't something that just naturally, naturally happens for me. So we know that choosing joy can often be as costly as the hardest things in our life, but it has a much greater reward, and that's something I don't want us to miss out on. And I think I'd go so far as to say it's possible for us to feel like we are minimizing the very real pain and suffering that's in and around us when we even talk about joy. And that when we say that we're rejoicing, that that's almost like naive, or it's making us oblivious to the realities of life. But that's, that's not what it is. What we're doing today is acknowledging that we have to do both. We have to acknowledge the sorrow and the joy simultaneously. And if you're like me, it's far too easy to spend most of your time sitting in the sorrow and almost exclude the joy from that conversation. And that's, that's what I want us to avoid doing. So this, this third Sunday of Advent is meant to help us move from the anguish to rejoicing. Not because the pain has suddenly vanished, but because God is relentlessly drawing near. And that's the reality that we get to stand here today and we get to acknowledge. Um, and I, as I was thinking about kind of like a picture to, to kind of ground this for me, the one that came to mind, um, I was telling my roommate who's here today, kind of about it, to kind of talk through, like, does this make sense? And I was thinking about the idea of like a Libra scale, like the scales that have a weight on both sides, right? So if you think about the sorrow and the pain on one side and like goodness and life on the other, it would be easy to think that the goal is like to balance the scales, that we would have at least have enough joy and happiness in our life to balance out the sorrow and the pain. Like if that's the best that we can hope for, like that we could at least even the scale. But I, I was thinking about it and I was imagining like, what if we picture it as though God put his finger on the joy side of the scale? And it's not like the sorrow side is empty now. Like, in fact, it weighs just the same amount that it did before. But that weight is almost insignificant when we compare it to the weight of goodness and glory. And I think that we wish that God would put his finger on the scale so much that like, the weight would just like, fly off. But that's like, not the reality that we see when we look around. The sorrow and the pain didn't go anywhere, but we're choosing to acknowledge the other side of the scale and see how much it offers us. So what I'm asking of us is that we as a community would choose to take a moment and set aside everything that we know that still needs to be done to prepare for Christmas, both the practical commercial side of it and in our hearts, and say, okay, in this moment, how can we choose to participate in joy now? And we'll come back to that question in a few minutes, um, but let's, let's take a look at our text um, before we do that. So our passage this morning is from the book of James, and it's one of the lectionary passages for today. And it speaks to how we are to wait for the coming of the Lord. And James has kind of always struck me as one of the more straightforward New Testament writers. He doesn't really beat around the bush. In four verses, James is going to urge us to be patient. And he gives us a nice agricultural analogy, as one does in Bible times. Um, and he's very clear that his reader's behavior is supposed to be affected by the fact that the coming of the Lord is at hand. So let's read the first couple of verses. This is from James 5, verses 7 and 8. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So James tells us, wait as the farmer waits, right? He says the farmer doesn't give up when his crop isn't ready to be harvested immediately. Instead, he waits with a reasonable hope and expectation of reward, that like his crop is going to grow. And while he waits, we can kind of assume that he probably works on other things because ultimately he is depending on things that are outside of his own power. He doesn't control if it rains or if there's a drought. He can't go stare at his crop and make it grow faster. Um, but he knows how seasons work. And ultimately, he knows the value of his harvest. And so he's willing and waiting, and he's able to endure. And he believes that the preciousness of what he is going to harvest is going to compensate him for this time when he isn't going to get to see that fruit yet. And so we as Christians, in the same way, are going to work hard and patiently endure even though the harvest, in this case, the second coming of Christ, like seems far away. And we believe that the preciousness of what we wait for is going to compensate us for this time. And I'm, I'm thinking about one of the sermons that came before us, before this one in Advent. And we talked about how, honestly, like the prophets and Paul and all of those people, like they wouldn't have believed that we would still be waiting. And yet we are. And because of that, we have to have something that helps us to endure. And that's part of what I'm, I'm seeing this joy as. It's like something that helps us be able to endure. And this, these first couple of verses end with the phrase, you know, establish your hearts. That's what that, this translation says. Other things you could say would be to make stable, to set fast, to strengthen, to turn resolutely in a set direction. It's a derivative of the same word that they use when they talk about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, heading towards his inevitable passion. It's a language that implies we are heading now towards a climax. Believe it as confidently as though it had already happened. Now, James continues in the next couple of verses. He says, Do not grumble, brothers and sisters, against one another that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And the Greek here is literally for groan not, which is like definitely my temptation when I'm waiting. Like that's, that's where I want to go. I want to give in to the pressure of suffering and my circumstances, and I want to start turning that on the people that I am closest to. And the text is warning us here, don't do that. Judgment is coming, and it's coming soon. There's a language of immediacy. The judge is at the door. And there's a call to be prepared. We're told to follow the example of the prophets who believed that the coming of the Lord was at hand. And it reminds me of my favorite, one of my favorite verses from Hosea that talks about sowing righteousness for yourself and reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground because it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and he rains righteousness on us. And here we are, hundreds of years later, at this point, thousands of years later, and we're still waiting. And that's, we still have to have the ability to endure. So the question is, how do we get to joy from a passage about patience and judgment? I mean, this passage doesn't even use the word joy. Um, and I think that we get there by thinking about the analogy of the farmer again, right? The farmer acknowledges, he recognizes the value of his crop. And so when the waiting is finally over, you can imagine the joy that he feels over that. And for us, strangely, the harvest that we have is this harvest of both joy and judgment. And those things arrive together for us. 
Fleming Rutledge, who is another Episcopal priest, um, wrote that it's the very strangeness of Advent that makes it so compelling because it sets before us the contradiction of the Christian gospel. And I am taking a little bit of a liberty to quote Rutledge here because she is very firmly in the camp that believes that you do not celebrate Christmas until it is Christmas. But at the same time, she speaks so poignantly to this reason for our rejoicing, so we're going to do it anyway. Um, she's not dead, but if she was, then I feel like she would turn over in her grave, but I'm going to read it anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> Rutledge writes, she says, something has happened with the announcement of John the Baptist. Remember, he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. With the announcement of John the Baptist, the world begins to turn on its hinges. The final reckoning is going to take place. And so the judge of the universe arrives on the scene. But it is not as we thought. The face of the judge is marked with infinite suffering. His hands and his feet are torn by spikes driven in by violent blows. His brow pierced by the crown of thorns bears the tokens of utmost humiliation. The judgment has already happened and it has taken place upon his own body. The son of God has borne it all himself. The judge who is to come has given himself to be judged in our place, to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. And what reason more could we want for our joy? The coming of the judge is no longer a reason for fear, but for joy and celebration. And the punishment that we deserve has already been taken care of, of, meted out upon the very Son of God who comes to us as a babe this Christmas day. But that's not the end of the story. We experience our greatest joy not by looking to the past, but by looking ahead to the future. And one of the passages that Kyle read this morning, which is also one of our lectionary passages, is 35. And it gives us a glimpse of what it looks like when it actually breaks forth. Isaiah writes, the wilderness and the dry land are going to be glad. The desert is going to rejoice and it's going to blossom. The people are going to see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. It talks about how waters are going to break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And the burning sand is going to become a pool, an oasis. And the ransomed of the Lord are going to return to Zion. And everlasting joy is going to be upon their heads. And sorrow and sighing are going to flee away. And to me, this is how we endure. Because we believe that Jesus' second coming will bring a universal restoration. And that when he comes back, the effects of sin's curse are going to be removed. There's going to be freedom for the captives. We're going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And there's justice and healing. And tears are going to turn to shouts of joy. And that future was inaugurated at the first Christmas. And that's what we're doing is we're reenacting and we're remembering and memorializing that time. But we're looking forward to when those things are going to be consummated at his second coming. And in the meantime, we do the work both of rejoicing and of persevering. So between these two passages, we have this tension. The passage in James and this passage in Isaiah, we have this tension, this dual reality, right? Between the already and the not yet. Joy both at hand and joy that's breaking forth. Jesus' coming is at hand, meaning still we wait for him. And over that, we have a prophetic joy. We believe in what will be. But at the same time, Jesus is here. Like we live now in the mystery and the wonder of Advent, that Christ already has come, and therefore we in our humanness, in our createdness, get to be here, and we are already being remade and recreated. 
And there's no reason to wait to begin this work of freedom and justice and healing. Like, we get to start that now. We're not waiting to begin that when Christ comes. And over this, we have a joy that breaks forth, right? We see with our own eyes the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So yes, we're still waiting, but we're not waiting for the first Christmas. We're using Advent as a time to remember and reenact the reality that the first Christmas has already come, and we are already not who we were, and that changes how we live. And sometimes um, when I was writing this sermon, there's times when you get stuck in your head and you're like, what do I want to say? And then there are moments when you have to get on your face and you have to be like, God, what do you, what do you actually want to say? And so when I did that this week, the picture that I felt like he gave me was the idea of a sunrise and the idea of a dawn. And I watched a bunch of time-lapse videos, which are already like sped up, and then I watched them like double time. And so you watch the sky like start to change colors, and it goes from being black to being like pink and purple, and then it kind of goes darker blue, and then all of a sudden the sun just bursts over the horizon, right? And so that's the moment that we're in. We're in this space where something is shifting and the sky is changing and all signs point to the fact that the sun is about to burst onto the scene. And in that moment, we have that feeling of like, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's almost here, even though it's like not here yet because we're like so excited and anticipating and our excitement like wells up in us. And that's how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live as though the sun were about to burst forth. And obviously, we've just spent a bunch of time talking about it, there are the dark nights of the soul like, that exist. And like all we can do is beg God to help us survive one more hour towards the dawn, one more hour towards the dawn, one more hour. But that's not where we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live as though the sun were about to burst forth. And Jonathan and I were talking about this. Like We could argue that the, the true dark night of the soul is those three days when Jesus was in the tomb. But now we're past that. And now, even though we don't know exactly when the sun is going to burst over that horizon, we're supposed to be living with that type of anticipation, with that type of moment that, like, it's almost here. And so every moment that passes is one moment closer to the glorious appearing of our Savior. So let's, let's kind of return to this question, like, how do we participate in joy now? Because I think that we're so immersed in these like cultural and human norms that we honestly like don't even know what it means to like choose true authentic joy anymore. Like we know the spontaneous feeling of joy when joy is a passive thing that happens to us. Like when you find out that you're pregnant or something, there's this like, excitement that like you didn't control it, it just like happens to you, right? But this active practice of choosing to rejoice, like that often escapes us. And it, it's not just us, like this is a cultural movement. Um, I was reading a piece that the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School did talking about the theology of joy. And they talked about how for much of history, this like articulation and cultivation of joy was like at the middle of Jewish and Christian like theology and practices and scripture. But over time, that idea has like all but disappeared. Like we don't really talk about it in social sciences and it's honestly pretty absent from our like lived experience. And my favorite part of like what they had written was that they talked about how the result has been like this flattening out or this like graying of human life in communities where we don't acknowledge joy. And it's kind of like imagining like a landscape that's now like colorless and drab. And like that's what we look like, our lives look like when we don't look at joy. But we're in this cultural moment, right, that where we want to be authentic and we want to be woke and we want to be self-aware. And like, that's great. Like I want to be a therapist. Like I'm all about that stuff. Like I could talk about it till I'm blue in the face. 
But <laughs> if we're not careful, one of the like unintended consequences of being authentic is that our lives end up littered with all of these tiny moments where we like actively are not choosing joy. Like we aren't even trying to choose it because the world just seems too painful and too broken. And I think I want to argue today that it's when the evidence seems most against choosing to rejoice that joy can be its most healing and its most restorative because that's when it most changes us. Because it's in those moments where we have to take a hard look at ourselves and we have to say, what is the point of our theology if we don't actually live it out? Because there's all these passages that talk about joy, and honestly, a lot of them are in the midst of passages that are like talking about sorrow and trouble. Like I think about all of these psalms that David writes, and he writes like, I'm struggling, where are you, God? All of this stuff. And then at the end, there's like a flip, and he starts to say, but even still, like I'm going to rejoice. I think about Philippians, I think about Romans, these men who are struggling and they're in sorrow, and yet at the same time they say, in the middle of these things, I want you to choose to rejoice. And it's that language that we had that Kyle preached on that talks about Daniel, right? It's the, but even so, I'm still going to choose that. Um, so I think about all these verses in James and Romans and First Peter, like they're telling us to rejoice. But we just, we just don't get there, like we often don't get there. And so I think what we're getting at here in this space is that we can really miss out when it comes to joy. Because there's plenty of times in our lives where we do not get what we want. When it's the dark night of the soul that seems as though it's never going to end. And in those moments, we can reject joy because it just seems too costly. From our human perspective, we feel like we're already spending enough emotional energy just trying to survive. And so the idea of like, like joy seems inauthentic in that moment and not reflective of our circumstances or the pain that we feel. And it just feels like too much of a reach from where we are. And I remember reading one of Shauna Nequest's books, and she talks about how faith like, requires so much more of her than she ever would have imagined. And then it like, scrapes so deeply through those bottom parts of our soul. And like, it's something that we can't fake. Like, we have to like, lay ourselves open to that kind of faith, to be vulnerable to what it might ask of us, what it might ask us to get free of, what it might ask us to give up. And on the flip side, you know, sometimes we do get what we want, right? Sometimes we do get that burst of spontaneous joy and maybe gratitude or happiness. And all too soon we realize that it's, it's not enough. Like, it didn't fix us. Um, there's something new now that we long for. And again, we reject joy in that moment because we still feel lack. And in this, I think that we, or at least I, am misunderstanding joy's true nature because joy still longs. And we try and like medicate that longing, but what would it be like if we actually let ourselves feel it and we let it fuel us to pray that God would help us fill that longing? So whether we do get what we want or we don't get what we want, joy can still be a painful reach from a vulnerable place. And yet in both of those scenarios, get what you want, don't get what you want, like joy was available to us in both of those spaces. And we miss out when we don't let ourselves go there. You know, we can choose to put ourselves in a place where rejoicing is possible. Like, we can't muster up a sustained feeling of joy, but we can choose to look for it. And we can, as Kurt Thompson says, and Jonathan has already quoted, like, we can put ourselves in the path of oncoming beauty. And Kyle and Jonathan and I were in the office this week, and we talked about these are the moments when we so deeply need our community in order to be able to do this and to keep doing it. Because alone... I'm going to fail to see past like my own cynicism. Like I'm going to self-sabotage and I'm going to refuse to allow myself the possibility that there could even be joy in the midst of my pain. 
And we were talking about how it's those moments like right before dawn, that like 2 to 6 a.m. hours when you're on the road and everyone else in the car has fallen asleep and it's just you like trying to drive. Like that's when the heart, that's when it's the hardest. Like that's when you're really trying to endure and that's when we need our community. So if I don't live as though joy is at hand, then quite honestly, like I can't be patient forever. I can't endure if I'm only capable of seeing what I lack. Violence and despair and anxiety, like those things are a slow, painful death. And what gives me hope is the belief that God is going to be faithful because he's been faithful before to me and to the people around me. And I need us to retell our stories so that I'm reminded of that. And I ran across a piece this week um, by Andy Squires who talked about how faith is not the same thing as optimism. And he writes about how the chaos of the universe kind of keeps us free from the idol of optimism and how he's not optimistic, but he is full of faith. And because he has faith, he can glory in his tribulations and believe that the spirit is working even when he's lost his bearings. And he writes about how life is hard and it doesn't get easier just because you trust in God. And I think all of us can affirm that. But he says, I don't know how you do it. Like, I don't know how you endure if you don't throw yourself into the joy of the Lord. And so Advent joy rooted in hope and faith it becomes an act of rebellion in the face of a broken world. It becomes an act of resistance against despair. In the face of scarcity and loss, joy is a claiming of abundance. It's the desert transformed. And so I want us to let ourselves go there and to have faith that God honors those who hope and risk, they risk hoping to be healed. So I want you to imagine with me that joy has come. I want you to imagine that the waiting is over and the culmination of all your hopes has arrived. Because isn't this where Advent is meant to leave us? Like at the coming of the king, both to the world and to our hearts. Because at this moment in history, like this is all we have, like the retelling of this Christmas story. And we remember it year after year because it bolsters our belief in what will happen in the future. We say that the person who is joy has already come once and therefore we believe that he is coming again. So I want you to imagine with me that like you're longing, whatever it is that you're longing for, imagine that it's come to pass, that God looked at you in your waiting and he said yes and amen. And I want you to close your eyes even and like imagine, picture that like intense burst of joy that you would feel, that spontaneous joy over a dream fulfilled, a prayer answered. And at the same time, I want you to acknowledge that that burst of joy would not last forever in and of itself. There would soon be another thing that you would start to long for. And so we're in that space where we have to choose to rejoice. Like that's the action here. We have to choose not but to continue to pursue and to work for this, this rejoicing. So as we start to turn towards communion, I wonder how joy is a reach for you in this season. Because I don't think it's a coincidence, as I said before, that all of those verses about joy and rejoicing are buried in the midst of passages about struggle and suffering. David, Philippians, that language of even so from Daniel. Like, remember those things. There's an invitation here to let ourselves go there and experience the fullness of joy, even though we know on this side of eternity, it's always going to be probably paired with some pain. And Fleming Rutledge, again, writes, God is on the move towards us, not the other way around. He's on the move towards us. And in the very midst of our confusion and incapacity, like we are met by the oncoming Lord. 
in our valley of ashes. We're seized by hope in the graveyard of dreams. The Holy Spirit comes and he breathes life into the dead. And in the place where illusions die, she writes, the sun rises upon us and his kingdom will have no end. Emmanuel comes to us. Because this is true, against all human reason, right? God comes and he empties himself of his glory and he enters into our desert places and he stands under the wrath of the Father in our place. And were it not for that, we couldn't continue. And so in that space, we choose to rejoice. And so as the band kind of comes back up, this is our invitation today, to persevere and to believe that because Jesus came already once and soon again, we are now able to do things that we would not otherwise be able to do. Rutledge writes that we can change our habits, we can confront our addictions, we can forgive our enemies and challenge our society. We can lower our defenses and stand up for justice and speak the truth, and we can break from our patterns of past sin. And those things are only possible to us because of the work that Christ has already done, that he does at the cross, and that we come and we acknowledge each week here at communion. And we might not be able to do all of those things, but the evidence is there that if we can do any of them, we can start to pursue any of them, it's evidence that this work has already started. And that's the life that's available to you. So the question is, do you want it? Are you willing to put yourself in a space, a tender place where you're going to reach for those things? Because that's the call that we have in this season of Advent. So let's pray. Jesus, we are so honored to get to welcome you into this space, to pursue you and to let ourselves be pursued by you. You are moving towards us and it is, it is inexplainable. We don't deserve it. We don't understand it. Yet we're here at this moment before the dawn and we want to be ready and we want to be prepared and we want to put ourselves out there in a space where you can come and you can move. So may we not forget that we are closer to your advent than we've ever been before. And may we be an Advent people who are watching and waiting and wondering and savoring the person of Jesus in our hearts, that we would revel in this joy and this hope that does not disappoint. We love you so much. Amen. We're going to take a couple of minutes, and the band's going to play a song. And at any point during that song, you can come up and take the elements, and then take them back to your seat, and I'll come back up in a few minutes and lead us in the taking of those elements.
confess that we have sinned against you, both by what we have inflicted and what we have neglected. Our sins are more than we can bear. We cannot hide our brokenness from you. As we come in humility, show us the path of repentance. Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us. For your name's sake, be merciful to us. By the blood of your Son, Jesus, wash us and make us clean. By the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us and make us new. For the sake of your kingdom, amen. God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in our forgiveness and coming to the table, it is our right, our duty, and our joy always and everywhere to give thanks to the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. In infinite love, God made us for himself, and when we had sinned against him and became subject to evil and death, God in his mercy sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to the Father's will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. And as our great high priest, he ascended to the right hand of glory that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. And as such, we pray together as our Savior Christ has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink of this cup and eat of this bread, do so in remembrance of me. And in doing so, we confess the great mystery that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We're going to play one more song. And I encourage you to just take this time to respond. We always say, however it is that you need to respond, sit, stand, pray. Some of us will be in the back if you want to talk through anything we talked about today or just prayer over the season in general. But just take this time to think about how joy is ours and the celebration that is today is ours. And we get to continue to walk in that over the next couple of weeks and then into the rest of the year. Joy is ours and it's ours into perpetuity. <laughs> 